Father, forgive me for what I've done. Forgive me my sins. That's what God is looking for. Honest, clear, acknowledgement, confession of sin. He says he will forgive us our sins. Would you take your Bible this evening, please, and open to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. This is typically the chapter we turn to for our teaching and understanding on the communion service. But a couple of the verses seem rather dark. And we're going to look at those tonight. And so if you have chapter 11 open, could I invite you to stand to your feet, please? We'll be reading verses 28, uh, 29, and 30. 28, 29, and 30. And then we'll have a word of prayer, and then you may be seated. So let's begin together. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Our Heavenly Father, help us tonight to shed a little light on a couple of dark verses. Please speak with our hearts. Help us to prepare our hearts for the table of the Lord. Thank you for the privilege we have of this uh, opportunity. And so be with us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Um, back in 2006, on March 22nd, 2006, the BC ferry boat called the Queen of the North sailed off course for 14 minutes before running aground and sinking, killing two people. Apparently, the young lady who was steering the ship at the time didn't know she was off course until she saw the trees. And then she tried an emergency maneuver uh, while desperately trying to find the autopilot switch, but she didn't know where it was. It's really sad that people suffered a lot of loss and two people actually died because of this terrible accident. One man went to prison for four or five years because of it. But it seems the accident all boils down to a careless attitude when it comes to properly training the staff how to navigate and how to operate the ship. And I, I suggest that that's what we have here. In the church of Corinth 2,000 years ago, it was started by the Apostle Paul. There was a lot of excitement, people getting saved and baptized and the birth of a new church. And it was a wonderful time. But Corinth was a very worldly place. And the Christians, unfortunately, brought this baggage of worldliness into the church with them. And so... It wasn't long before they messed up just about everything you could mess up. And if you read the book of Corinthians, 
1 Corinthians in particular. There's 2 Corinthians as well, but 1 Corinthians, you'll see some of the areas, key important areas that they just bombed. And the communion service is such an important and precious time. Now, we all understand, I hope we all understand, communion is not the doorway to heaven. No one gets to heaven by taking communion. Perhaps you were raised in a a church where you were taught that one of the key principles of getting to heaven was the communion. Maybe it was called the mass. Maybe it was... It was, it was called something else, uh, the Eucharist perhaps. But the Bible is very clear that it's not communion that gets us to heaven. It's repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's the key. That's what gets us to heaven. Well, then what role does communion play? Communion plays an important role in the life of the Christian. And we are commanded to take part in it. It's not an option. It's like baptism. We are commanded, after we're saved, to be baptized. Now, it doesn't mean within 60 seconds of your salvation you should be getting baptized. It doesn't mean that. But it means in due course, in a proper amount of time, a little bit of teaching, learning, you need to follow the Lord in the waters of baptism. Communion is a very special, very precious picture for us. It pictures the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't picture his resurrection. It pictures his death. Ye do show the Lord's death till he come. That's what it says here in this chapter. The the good old folks at Corinth managed to mess this up. And I think it gets down to a careless attitude. Today, many Christians, and I'm not saying anyone in particular, but I'm saying many Christians have a careless attitude toward the Lord's table. We make an announcement, we're having the communion service. For some Christians, they say, boy, that's great. For other Christians, they say, eh, so what? And It's more that, I think, is the problem. The carelessness. We know that carelessness can cost lives. Um, And and that's why, for safety's sake, we don't give the kitchen knives to the little children to play with. Because what might happen? I'm waiting. Yeah. Yeah, kids are going to just be kids. And... Something careless is going to happen, and before you know it, another trip to the hospital. And um, we know that careless attitude around guns. There's been numerous accidental shootings. I saw in the news Britney Spears. Boy, she's a piece of work, isn't she? Uh, But God loves her. Um... And she was claiming she got assaulted at some concert. And now it's come out that she accidentally hit herself in the face. You don't know what I'm talking about? It's just as well. It's not worth it. But accidents happen. A careless attitude around explosives can cost lives. 
Even in firework factories, they've been known to blow up and a lot of people die. Careless attitudes is what I'm getting at. Now, we've just read two or three verses here and they seem a little on the dark side. Communion is something that we, we approach with a thankful heart. But what are we talking about here? Uh, in verse uh, 29, say, it says, For he that eateth and, and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. Now tonight, <coughs> I'm trying to make my voice last, but tonight uh, I want to do a little Bible study with you. So have your Bible open and ready because we're going to do some word studies and we're going to get a better picture, a better idea of what God is teaching us here in, in these verses. Now, the word damnation, um, it, it comes from a Latin word damnum and it means harm or loss or penalty or damage. That's the idea behind the word damnation is that it's hit the fan and now, boy, there is trouble. So uh, we'll be coming back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but I'd like us to go to Matthew chapter 23. And let's take a look at how this word is used in Scripture. And in particular here, the Lord Jesus uses this word, Matthew chapter 23. And he's dealing with the scribes and the Pharisees. And he says here, chapter 23 and verse 14, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses. By the way, that is a wicked thing, a wicked thing to do. The widows who are struggling to survive, their husband died, they're trying to make ends meet. And here are these religious charlatans, the scribes and Pharisees, and they come and they take away what these poor ladies have. And so they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayer. Now Jesus says this, Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. So right away we see the word damnation is used in a, in a very serious and negative context. And no doubt these scribes and Pharisees cashed in on damnation after they died in a place called hell. But notice that Jesus called it greater damnation. There's damnation and then there's greater damnation. That tells you that in hell there are different levels of punishment because damnation means harm and loss and penalty and damage and all that describes what happens to a lost soul in hell. Remember, there'll be many lost souls in hell that they never devoured any widow's houses. They never tried to make these big, long, you know, phony baloney prayers. Uh, they didn't try and lead people astray. They were just nice neighbors, but they never received Christ as Savior. And so when they died, they received damnation. But then there are others who seem to go out of their way to take advantage of people and hurt them and profit uh, off of them. They receive the greater damnation. So no question, in hell, 
there is damnation, and then there's greater damnation. Um, in verse 33, also, the Lord says, Ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. That's a poisonous snake, very poisonous. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? What are we learning? We're learning that this word damnation is connected with hell. And it deals with damage and harm and, and payment and loss. And so we go now to the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 3. And we have here, um, from verse 22 to about verse 30, we have here the same crowd, and scribes and Pharisees and so on, and they are accusing Jesus of being in league with Satan. Jesus performed miracle after miracle, and the unsaved Jewish religious leaders of his day looked at the miracles and said to Jesus, you are doing this by the power of Satan. Those miracles were meant to prove that he was the Messiah. But what these horrible men were doing, they were trying to blind people's eyes to what Jesus was teaching them and saying, you are in league with Satan. And this, if you look in verse uh, 29, he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Something else about damnation. It lasts for eternity. It doesn't last for a year or a thousand years and then it's over. It lasts for eternity. Um, he says in verse 30, because they said he hath an unclean spirit, meaning a, um, a, a devil in league with Satan. So if we come down to um, chapter number 12 in Mark. And verse number 40, we have here again the condemnation of uh, our Lord Jesus Christ, Mark 12 and 40. Again, the religious leaders which devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive greater damnation. We turn to Luke Chapter number 20. <clears throat> Luke chapter number 20. Lo and behold, a third time we have in verse 47 about the scribes. Verse 47, which devour widows' houses and for a show make long prayers. The same shall receive greater damnation. Three times we're, we're told here about the greater damnation that certain ones will receive because of their, their false doctrine, their bad teaching, and leading people astray. And uh, if we turn to the Gospel of John... In chapter number 5, John chapter number 5, here our Lord is, is teaching 
that he is indeed um, the Son of God and has authority. Verse 28, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice as Jesus' voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. So again, uh, we are taught about damnation and hell and it being eternal. Now we'll turn to the book of Romans after the book of Acts, the book of Romans, chapter number 3. Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> this is that uh, famous chapter in verse 23. It says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And many of us know that verse. But prior to that, um, Paul is writing and he is uh, talking about um, faith and unbelief. And he gets then, uh, let's see, down to uh, verse number 8. He says, And not rather as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, so this wasn't true, Paul was saying that others are saying that it's true. Let us do evil, that good may come. Now that is a bad doctrine, a bad philosophy. Paul wasn't teaching that. He was saying that he's being accused of teaching that. But then he goes on to say, whose damnation is just. The people who are involved with that kind of thinking are going to end up in hell. There's damnation waiting for them. And we're going to see a, vo a verse in just a minute that helps to back that up. Now turn to chapter 13 of Romans. Chapter 13, we're told in verse 1, Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. He's talking politics. He's telling Christians not to rise up in rebellion against the government, not to shake our fist, you know, at the prime minister's face. He's telling us not to do that, but we're to be subject to him. Paul wrote this. He wrote these words when the madman Nero was the emperor of Rome. He was one of the worst and the craziest and the evilest of emperors, Nero. The guy who really is the guy who burned down Rome, persecuted the Christians like crazy. And Paul was saying, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Christianity was illegal in the Roman Empire because the Christians wouldn't burn a pinch of incense to the emperor. That was mandatory throughout the Roman Empire. You could keep your little gods, but just include the emperor in there. Christians wouldn't do that. And that made them outlaw. You know, the day may come. When Christianity, real Bible Christianity, is outlawed in this country. You say, it'll never happen in Canada. Well, I hope it never does. But it's possible. The government may continue to slip and slide downward. And certain laws are put into effect requiring us to say certain things or sign on to certain things. And we won't do it. 
And when that day comes, there's going to be a line in the sand. And you'll find that a lot of false Christians will say, no problem, and they'll sign it. But true Bible believers will say, we can't do that. And true Bible Christianity may become an outlawed religion in the days ahead. We don't know, but be prepared. But look at verse 2. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves, what's that next word? Damnation. That suggests that the people who resist are not real born-again Christians. There's no love of Christ. There's no humility. There's no willingness to be subject to the higher powers, even though those powers are controlled by the madman Nero. And let's turn now to the end of the New Testament, to the book of 2 Peter, chapter number 2. 2 Peter, chapter number 2. <clears throat> Peter begins chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. He's talking about false prophets. These people are not saved. They're not going to heaven. They do not teach a proper gospel. They are false prophets. He says there are false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable heresies. Heresies that they will be damned for, even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And may and many shall follow their pernicious ways. The word pernicious means completely like um, destructive. Uh, uh, there's a violence here, uh, uh, like a, a violent death almost in the word pernicious. By reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. We see that happening today. Some of what's happening in certain so-called Christian circles is so abominable that we're all getting tarred with the same brush. The real honest Christian, men and women, are being lumped in with some of these horrible people that are doing horrible things in the name of Christianity. And verse 3, And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. These are false teachers. Now, we're going to find them just about everywhere. But I'll tell you right now, you'll find a lot of them amongst the charismatics and some Pentecostals. You'll find them amongst Baptists too. They're found just about everywhere. Guys who will stand up and you know, plead with tears for, for your last dollar, and yet they're living in million-dollar mansions and flying around the world in million-dollar jets and things. They're living high on the hog, making merchandise out of people. Anything wrong in having a house or having an airplane? No, nothing wrong with that at all. They're, they're fine. But to fleece the flock to take severe advantage of God's people. And that's what was happening here. And so Peter was saying that these are false teachers. They're going to end up with their just rewards in hell. 
they will come together with damnation. And even as we live and breathe today, there are people in hell that are experiencing incredible damnation, greater damnation than others. And I couldn't begin to describe that. I've never been to hell. Maybe we, we will never have a, an idea of what that's really like. I don't know. But we just have to take the Lord's word for it. It's serious. And so now, with that in mind, let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And the careless attitude of the church at Corinth caused some people to be the recipients of damnation. Obviously, saved people will not receive damnation. These are unsaved people. And that's why we try to warn people before the communion service. If you do not know the Lord Jesus, do not partake. Don't take a little bit of the bread and a little cup of the juice. Don't do that because God is watching you. And there is consequence to doing that. To say that you're something when you're not can be very serious. It happened a few years ago here in Canada at a uh, uh, November 11th um, parade and celebration, you know, the Armistice Day and all that. We do it every year, November 11th. And there was a man in Toronto who was walking around in a uh, military uniform and someone sp spotted him and called him out and said, you are not a soldier. You've never been a soldier. You've never been part of the Canadian military. How dare you wear that uniform? And he was caught. And he went before a, a judge. He, he was put in jail. He was fined. That's a serious thing to walk around and pretend that you're a, something when you're not. Once in a while in the news, we'll see where uh, the police pull over another policeman and they find that that policeman is not a policeman. He's just some guy pretending to be a policeman. And that is serious, serious business. And for an unsaved person to partake of the body and blood of the Lord Jesus the way a saved person would. When they're not part of Christ, they're not saved. That is a serious thing in the eyes of God. And according to this verse here, number 29, they eat and drink damnation to themselves. Now that brings us to the second word. And the second word is worthy, or in this case, unworthy. Verse 29, for he that eateth and drinketh unworthily. You see that? Now, if you go back to verse 27, you'll see it again. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the blood of the body and blood of the Lord. What does that mean? It means you're guilty of killing my Jesus. That's what it means. It's as if you had the hammer and nails and drove them into his hands and feet. It's as, as if you took the cat of nine tails and lashed him within an inch of his very life. 
It's as if you drove the spear into his side. You are guilty of the body and blood. You put him to death. You killed the Savior. Would you not agree that's a serious accusation? Someone who is not saved is unworthy. Now I've made comment on this before. The word worth means importance or merit or excellence or something of value. If something is unworthy, then it doesn't have those qualities. Sometimes you get a, um, um, a package, you buy something from the store, it comes in a cellophane package. You open the, the cellophane, you keep what's inside and you throw away the cellophane. That's typically what people do. You buy your groceries and uh, it comes in a little box or a can or something and you open the can and you take out the food and then you get rid of the can. Usually, some people save things. But normally, we have a, a box in our home called trash or garbage and we throw things that are unworthy. There's no worth. There's no value. There's no merit in them. We throw them out. We get rid of them. Again, some people are pack rats and they can't throw anything out. And it's almost a sickness. Some people have packed their houses, every room in their house, with every possible scrap and can and box you could possibly imagine. Literally wall to wall, floor to ceiling. These things come out in the news. Someone dies, they go into the home, and they're shocked to see that this person was a pack rat. And everything that over the last 40 or 50 years is found there in the house. And it can be also rat infested. Rodents, mice, uh, cockroaches and things are all common to the pack rat uh, who, who's a real hoarder. Typically, we, we keep the good, we throw away the bad. That's what we do. People who are saved have Christ inside them. That's our value. That's what God sees. That's the worth. People who are not saved do not have Jesus inside them. They are unworthy. And people who come to church who are not saved, I mean, praise God they come to church, hear the gospel, experience the presence of the Lord Jesus, hear the singing. It's all wonderful. They need that. But there's a line in the sand. And only saved people can partake of the table of the Lord because it tells us, he that eateth or drinketh unworthily. And so, they're unsaved. They eat and drink to themselves damnation. I want you to know that the Lord's table is important. It ought to be important in your life. When you hear that the church is going to have a communion service, you ought to do your best to be at that communion service. But what if my boss offers me double time and a half if I work that Sunday? Well, that's your loss. Because you'll find that all that money that you got will disappear. Things will break down that should not break down and you'll have to fork over that money that you worked so hard for. If we put the Lord first, we're going to find the Lord's going to take care of us. He is our heavenly Father. He is honored and glorified 
when we gather around, when we park our feet under the communion table. It brings Him honor and glory. It pleases Him. Remember, it's not a system of merit points or brownie points to get us to heaven. Well, you've taken communion 2,700 times in life, so that's good for you. You'll get to heaven. It's nothing like that. But it does please the Lord incredibly when we, when we come to the communion time. And so we are not to absent ourselves at the communion service. Now we come to the last word here. And it's in verse 28. But let a man examine himself. The context here is to examine your life to make sure you are saved. That's the context. We all know that there shouldn't be sin in our lives. We all know that. And we all know, at least I hope we all know, that we're to confess our sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Now the word confess means to own up to, to thoroughly agree with. Um, if, if someone here says, hey, I lost my cell phone. Has anyone seen my cell phone? And someone stands up and says, well, I found this cell phone. Could this be yours? And then that person comes and looks at it and says, yeah, it has the scratches. Uh, it has the little uh, uh, um, flower that I stuck on the back of it. Yeah. It, oh, look, it, it has my initial. That's my cell phone. What you're doing is you are confessing your cell phone. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we go to God and say, God, I'm wrong, you're right. I committed that sin. It's bad, it's wrong, I shouldn't have done it, but I did it. My fingerprints are all over it. Father, forgive me for what I've done. Forgive me my sins. That's what God is looking for. Honest, clear, acknowledgement, confession of sin. He says he will forgive us our sins. Now, this word examine, it means to sort of look at all of the evidence, to weigh out a situation, to come to a logical conclusion. See, what are we to examine? We are to examine whether we be in the faith. That's what we are to examine. And that's what Paul told to the church at Corinth. Because the church at Corinth was made up of saved and unsaved people. And you know something that was very prevalent in the church of Corinth? Was the speaking in tongues. In the city of Corinth, there was a horrible religion. The temple of Aphrodite. And it had to do with uh, a lot of immoral, impure in the eyes of God, illegal sexual activity. The, the priests were actually priestesses. You'd go into that place and you'd rent a priestess for an hour. And that's how you would worship. And part of the worship was the speaking in ecstatic languages. I'm not kidding you. That's what happened there. Say, so Why in the world would, would people do that? They did that for the belief that Aphrodite could bless them. And they would have... Lots of kids and healthy kids and have healthy livestock and have 
healthy crops in the field. And in order to get those things, they would worship in this immoral way. Now, obviously, the depravity of of men and the encouragement of Satan brought about the worship of Aphrodite. But part of the worship was the ecstatic utterances. And so when people started coming to the church at Corinth, they were hearing tongues and they're saying, hey, I know that. I know that. And it was a mess. They messed that up as well. And so in the church at Corinth, there was this mixture of saved and unsaved people. And they were all partaking of the communion service. And what happened? Look at verse 30. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. In Acts chapter 7, one of the first times we run into the word sleep connected with a Christian. That's when the the martyr Stephen was stoned to death and he slept. And we see that word used elsewhere in the New Testament, that when Christians die, it's like the body sleeps. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Now, we don't have time to go into much more than that, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it says, examine yourselves whether ye be in the faith. And so, number one, are you saved? So how do I know I'm saved? If you're saved, there'll be evidence of it. Plenty of evidence. Listen, unsaved people can go to church, so that is not an evidence. Unsaved people can read the Bible, so that is not an evidence. You need to go to 1 John and read those chapters. Because in there you'll find evidences of salvation. A sensitivity to sin. Unsaved people don't tend to be sensitive to sin. And they'll often use you know, some improper words. Even the Lord's name in vain. And they think nothing of it. What, what, what I do? What I do? Because they're dead in sin and trespasses. They're not sensitive. If, you, if you've ever burned yourself accidentally, and then you notice, oh, it feels kind of dead. Well, that's what happens with sin. Lost people, they're deadened. Saved people are sensitive to sin. Saved people love other saved people. That's another evidence Unsaved people, they can come to church, but they don't have any great love for other Christians because they're not one themselves. You see, how do I know I'm saved? You go to 1 John, it'll show you all of the tests. There's about seven, eight tests of life. You examine yourself. Well, out of those seven tests or eight tests, what if I, what if I don't pass one? Well, that's all right. There's probably... Still a bunch of evidence. Maybe you'll fail one or two or something, but there's going to be a bunch of other evidence that's going to prove. Hey, if you came in the room and there's a body on the floor, is it alive? Is it dead? You don't know. What do you have to do? Start performing tests. Hey, buddy. And if, if the body looks up at you, you know it's alive. Well, what if he doesn't look up? Hey, buddy. Then you take your foot and you give him a tap. You know, maybe you'll, you'll, you'll tap his foot. And if he moves, you know he's alive. If he doesn't move, well, is that the end of it? 
No, there's still several more tests to find out if he's alive or not. And it's the same with Christians. Sometimes Christians aren't living for the Lord the way they ought to be and they'll fail some of those tests. But there should be enough evidence. You know, the thing that I... It's a pet peeve with me. It's moms and dads who are actually saved, but they don't really communicate that to their kids. And their kids get saved and they're wondering, is my mom saved? Is my dad saved? I don't know. I've come to church a couple of times. I once saw her read the Bible. He once prayed, you know, at the meal or something. But are they saved or not? And then mom and dad die. And then the kids never know for the rest of their lives. They have to leave it with the Lord. One of the best things Christian parents can do is give tons of evidence to their children that they're saved, they love the Lord, they're going to be in heaven. Well, I'm not here to preach about that. But I am here to say this. Careless attitudes around the communion table are going to cost us. You may be saved, but if you're careless with the Lord's table. Can you imagine if we went to baptize someone? Now that's a precious thing, isn't it? We fill up the baptistry, we have all of the robes and everything. And it's a very precious and sacred and special time in their life. And so they come down into the baptistry and they have a rubber ducky and they have a snorkel, and they have a mask, and they have some kind of uh, inflatable around their waist, and they, you know, come on down into the baptistry like that. Well, what kind of attitude is that? The baptism pictures the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Can you picture Jesus on the cross with a rubber ducky and a snorkel? Can you imagine what that would look like? It would be blasphemous, wouldn't it? Well, can you imagine some believer with such a careless attitude toward baptism or a careless attitude toward the Lord's table? Folks, he died for us. It pictures his broken body and his shed blood. We need to give it all of the respect and love and sacredness we can. Let's close our eyes and bow our heads. Let's ask the Lord to search our hearts and see if there be any wicked way in us. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.